We come this morning to our sermon passage. We're continuing on in the Ten Commandments, and this week we're on the Fourth Commandment. So um, this is the commandment to remember or keep the Sabbath holy. Um, It's printed for you in your bulletin, or you can turn there. It will be in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Before I read it, I was reading uh, uh, an article this week. It was from U.S. News and World Reports. And if you know U.S. News and World Reports, it's probably because this is the publication does rankings. So every year they do like college or university rankings. And the college will say, we were number one in seven categories or whatever. But they'll also rank other things. And the ranking I was reading today was actually from last year. But it was a ranking of 87 different countries on earth in all these different categories. And I'm an American. I was born here. Um, and we're number one, right? In my heart, USA, USA. World Cup rolls around, Olympics, I'm all in. I am a walking red, white, and blue. And as I was looking at these rankings, there were a number of places where U.S. was number one. We were number one in categories like power. That's military power. That's, that's uh, even economic power, though that was a separate category. It's the ability of a nation to kind of dictate what goes on in world affairs. That's the U.S. right there. U.S., uh, what, are, what do they always call the president and they have for generations? The leader of the free world, right? We were number one in power. We were number one in economic leadership. Similar category, but Americans are really good at money. We're really good. Like our market kind of decides how the rest of the world's going to go. So we're not, we got wolves back there this morning, apparently. <laughs> we're number one in power and strength. We're number one in economic leadership. We're number one in wolves. No, I love it, Matt. Don't. <laughs> I love it. It's great. I'll take it all day. No, I bet it's mine. No, okay. Yeah. Hey, everybody online. Um... We're number one in entrepreneurship, which is not a word I don't think anybody ever pronounces. Uh, entrepreneurship. Yeah, that's a word you write, right? You don't say that one. Anyway, that's like self-starting. The ability for us to dream and think, okay, I, if I want to do this thing, I can kind of put it into practice and have that drive. Well, I'm going to start this new business. I'm going to do this new thing. I'm going to start a new church. That's what we're number one in. Power, economic leadership, entrepreneurship. We know how to work. Right? We know how to work and work hard. We know the value of a good day's work. That's what the American dream is all about. But there's some things that we were not best at. And I don't know if this is going to surprise you like it did me. But there's some things that we were decidedly not number one at. There was social purpose. This category of social purpose. It was the feeling that what you do matters. That your life has a purpose. And that your connection and relationships to other people, your life matters. We weren't even top 10. We were 19 out of 87. So we work hard. We got a lot of power. We got a lot of money. But when it comes to really feeling like our lives matter, 19th. Quality of life. Quality quality of life. When people ask, uh, you know, are you secure? Do you feel happy? Guys, we're the most powerful and most rich nation that the world has ever known. And when we were asked and they were analyzed, quality of life, we weren't even top 20. We were 29th out of 87. People feeling like they are secure and happy. 
And then adventure, this category where you feel like you've got space in your life to explore things. Space to really chase after and, 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 and have adventure as part of your life. We were 33 out of 87. As Americans, we work hard and we're really busy people. If you ever want to be shocked at how busy we are, talk to somebody who grew up in a European nation or even an Asian nation. In seminary, I remember uh, I went to seminary in Orlando, which is a, you know, a hub for international folks. We had so many different nations represented in our class, and I had countless conversations with people who were from Indonesia, from even Canada, from England. Why are you guys so busy? Why do you feel like you got to fill every hour of the day with something? Americans, we work hard and we're busy, but we're busy in a way that doesn't seem to lead to feelings of happiness and security or feelings that we matter or have a space for adventure. We hustle, guys, and we're pulled in this direction and that. And to be honest, I really didn't need U.S. News and World's Report to tell me that. All I needed to do was look at my own life or my own history. All I needed to do was kind of go outside and look around and watch people. We are so busy. We are working hard. We are hustling. And what for? What do we tend to get out of it? Honestly, burnout, anxiety, depression, guilt, and shame. I'm bringing all of this up to make you feel bad. No, not really. <laughs> I'm bringing all of this up this morning. Because I think that God actually has guidance for us on this very topic, and it's in the fourth commandment. The one that Christians, I think, are most likely to overlook and cast aside to say, well, that's the Old Testament. I don't pay attention to this part. It's the wisdom of the Sabbath. The wisdom of the Sabbath. Rest and worship. So that brings me to our passage this morning. We're in, again, Exodus 28 through 11. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you are, to, you are to labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it you show us who you are and who we are in you. So I pray in these moments as we look at your wisdom and your instruction to us regarding rest and worship and this Sabbath day principle that you would move upon our hearts, not to respond in guilt or shame in what we see and what we're called to, but rather we would respond with great joy, knowing that you, the God of the universe, cares for us in our day-to-day, week-to-week lives. Give us faith to enter your rest and worship you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in this series, I'm breaking up the sermons into three different sections. We're asking and answering three different questions in every single one. And the first one is, who are we in the gospel? Who are we in the gospel? And to, to do a little summary of the last few weeks, we started the Ten Commandments where the Ten Commandments start, which is not with the first commandment. If you open Exodus 20, when God starts speaking to his people, he does not begin with commandment number one. He begins by telling them who he is and what he has already done. 
Grace goes first always. God frees his people and then he teaches them how to live free. The best lesson of that is where the Ten Commandments are in the book of Exodus. It's not chapter 1, it's chapter 20. What we see in Exodus is God's people are enslaved and when Moses is sent by God to be their redeemer, to free them from that slavery in Egypt, Moses does not show up with the Ten Commandments and say, here is your guidebook on being free. You guys do these ten things, you do them well enough, then God will set you free from slavery. No, God works apart from anything they do to free them. And only after they are freed from slavery does he instruct them on how to live as his freed people. Grace goes first. That's a principle that runs through Scripture. It's one of the most important things in Scripture. Grace goes first, always. And then the first commandment is don't have any gods besides God. God says, don't have any gods other than me. And what God is telling us there is, you know, a god isn't necessarily something we think is like a deity. It doesn't have to be Zeus or, you know, Apollo or, or Jupiter or any of these Greek or Roman gods or whatever, or even Thor. Um, a god is anything that we look to for ultimate meaning and value. Anything we look to to give us ultimate definition. And in Christ, especially, God bestows a value on us that is beyond calculation. And so we don't run to other things to find our value. God justifies us. God gives us our worth by faith. Remember, something's worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And if God's willing to move heaven and earth and to send Christ to redeem us, which that's an economic term, to buy us back, he's conferred on us a value that we could never attempt to earn. And so let's stop looking at other gods. The second commandment is about having no images made of God, not making any statues he speaks about, no graven images to bow down and worship to. And what that is, is it's telling us that God hasn't just given us value and sent us off. He's redeemed us for a life-giving relationship. And what that means for us is we pay attention to what he has said. Because one of the things he tells his people is when I appeared to you, you didn't see anything. You heard my words. So it's improper. Don't make anything to represent me. It doesn't make your worship better. You don't need to craft anything to impress me. Your worship will not be more powerful if you have the most beautiful statue of who God is. No, attend to what he said. Trust his word and approach him the way he has told us to. And then the third commandment we talked about last week, it's about not taking the Lord's name in vain, which is a whole lot more than just not saying certain words. God's adopted us into his family. He's given us his name. Not as a burden, but as a calling. And we walk into the world that we live in as God's people. Called to value what he values and love what he loves. And live lives that are full of meaning and purpose. And that brings us to the fourth commandment. Because of all these things that I've already said. All these emphases that God has hit home for his people. We can be people who rest. Rest. Rest is a powerful word. Rest is a word that when I hear it, it brings out, it elicits emotions from within me. Because I live in a world, and you live in the same one, where rest is often seen as um, a thing that weak people need. If you need to rest, it means you don't have enough strength. 
I know that I, I have that in me because on a random Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon when I feel like I need to lay down and take a nap, this is what I say. Angela, I'm sorry, but I need to take a nap. I'm sorry, but I need to take a nap. It's like I have a moral failure that I need to take a nap. And you're laughing because you've probably thought the same thing. When you need rest, you feel guilty. When you call into work because you need rest, you feel guilty. When you stay home from school, when you mess up your perfect attendance record because you need to rest, you feel guilty. But because of who God is, we can rest. We don't have to make something out of ourselves. And this is the downside of the American dream and what I think can make the American dream so poisonous to our hearts because it tells us you have all these resources, now go make something of yourself. Make something. And that sounds attractive because it feels like I can go out into my world and I can take up these things that I have, these gifts I've been given, and if I really work hard, I'm going to get value out of it. And yeah, if you work hard, something might good might happen. But I think most of us, if we live long enough, we also know if we work hard, it might blow up in our face too. There's things outside of our control. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't need to take the stuff we've been given and go make something of ourselves. We already are something. We don't need to go and create value from what we've been given. We are already valuable because of what God has said to us. We already are something. In Christ, we are something that all the trophies in the world can't add to and all the failures of the world can't subtract from. And we don't have to think of rest as something that only belongs to us if we have worked the absolute hardest. Rest is something we don't have to earn. The Israelites here that heard God say this in Exodus 20, they had been slaves in Egypt, They were the lowest people in society, in the most powerful kingdom that the world had ever known. And in that kingdom, even though they had no civil rights, that they were at the absolute lowest, they were immensely valuable and useful to Pharaoh. You can go back and read those first 15 chapters of Exodus. And Pharaoh, especially after Moses shows up in Exodus 5, he is slightly freaking out. Because he thinks, I'm about to lose my entire labor base. We've got these folks, and we don't have to pay them for all their work, and they're about, it looks like they're trying to skip town. These slaves had created incredible wealth in Egypt. In fact, in the first chapters, you can see once uh, the Israelites are enslaved, it's so productive that they have to build two store cities just to store all the wealth. They have to start new cities because they have run out of places to store all the wealth that has been created from this slave labor. And like so many societies in human history, including our own, the powerful had found it incredibly profitable to spin a lie that people are only worth what they can produce, that a human life is worth the money it can bring in. The, the Egyptians are not the only ones that are guilty of that. So often when we let our talk of the American dream run amok, that is exactly what we do. We limit people in their value to what they can bring to the table money-wise. We reduce human beings created in the image and likeness of God to a cell on an Excel spreadsheet, to a number in an equation. 
And so when Moses first arrives on the scene and he's talking to Pharaoh, he gives a simple request. He doesn't walk in and say, let my people go. We always think of that, especially if you've seen the Ten Commandments. You think of Charlton Heston, let my people go. Moses does say that, but when he first shows up, this is what he asks for, a three-day weekend in our own terms. Moses shows up and he requests for three days off for the Israelites. That's it. For them to go into the wilderness, take three days off to go worship their God outside of Egypt. But Pharaoh would hear none of it. It's in Exodus 5 if you want to go back and read it later. As soon as they ask Moses, or uh, Pharaoh turns and he says, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Why are you taking them away from your labor? Get back to your work. Lazy. That is what you are. Lazy. That's what Pharaoh says. This mindset that people are, are the work they can produce, and that's what they're worth, is part of what God is rescuing his people from. To drive this point home, when the Israelites are freed from Egyptian slavery, and so the crossing of the Red Sea, they're miraculously delivered from the Egyptian armies, what happens, there's like, a, there's like 50 days between that happening and the Ten Commandments being given at Sinai. So there's like 50 days here. And what did the Israelites, slaves who had been forced to work, couldn't even take a three-day weekend, what did they experience then? They're in the wilderness in a place they've never been before. And what does God do before he gives them the Ten Commandments? He provides them food they didn't have to hunt or harvest. It literally was just on the ground when they'd wake up in the morning. He provides water that they didn't have to go find. He guides them apart from them needing to know how to work a map. People who had lived for generations and had been told that their rest was something, uh, rest was something not for them, that you're lazy, get back to work, get back to your labor. People that had been told that the only way they could measure their value is meet a quota to make money for someone else, live day by day in the intimate care of God, apart from anything they do to bring it to themselves. It's a remarkable contrast to go from generations of slavery to just waking up in the morning to eat. That's it. With the Sabbath rest here, when God is giving his commandments, when he gives the fourth commandment, God is making clear to his people that he loves them more than what they can do for him. Because on paper, God could say, you have seven days in your week, and you need to maximize the amount of work you can put in on these seven days. So I'm going to teach you how to chart out your week to be the most productive person you can possibly be. But what God does is he gives his people a calendar and he says, no, you are more important than what you can do to the point that you are to prioritize above your work, rest. You are to prioritize you being valuable enough to stop, to detach your mind in who you are from what you do, and to be able to rest. God makes it clear to his people he loves them more than them for them not for what they can do for him. God doesn't say, 
you know, you've had these 50 days off. You've had your vacation. Get back to work. You're lazy. Get back to your labor. No more of that Pharaoh way of thinking. God gives his people a new calendar. And to make sure it sinks deeply into their hearts, he says, every week, every seven days, you are to stop. Because your calendar or the ticking clock in your mind, that to-do list is not your God. I am. Turn off the schedule. You are not what you do. He's telling them that work is good. Don't hear me wrong. Work is a good thing. But he's telling them that work can be good and work can have its rewards, but only if it has its limits. Work can be a very good thing, but only if it has its limits. Work without stopping, work without rest is bad work. It tears us up. That's what it does. And he's also telling them another thing, that good work is incomplete apart from rest. He's telling them that work does not have the power to define them, and rest is not something they earn, as if only the people who work hardest get the best kind of rest. You may have noticed he goes through a list of different types of folks that are able to rest. He doesn't say work as hard as you can for six days and then you've earned your rest. He says, no, you're to do all your work, so wrap up what you need to in those six days. And on the Sabbath, you rest, but not just you. Your children rest. Those kids don't have a job. You know what I mean? Your children rest. Your servants, essentially your employees, anybody that depends on you, that you employ, they rest too. And not just them, your animals rest. And in fact, any foreigner that is in your area of influence, people that you don't have any familial ties to, people that you really don't have any social obligations to, they rest too. Everybody gets the same rest here. The poor and the powerless, even the animals. All of this belongs to us. All of this is our inheritance as God's people. We aren't Israelites at Sinai. We are on the other side of Jesus. But the need for rest and worship in our world has not changed. If anything, we can feel this deeply. Because we live in a world that expects maximum output. That expects always do your best. Work your, 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 your hands to the bone. Work hard. And then you can rest maybe. But work, work, work. But this promise, this need for rest, this gift that God gives, it belongs to us. Now the Sabbath for Israelites, and all through the Old Testament, the Sabbath was Saturday. It was the last day of the week. It was designed to, be, uh, it was designed to show them that work should always end in rest. And it was also kind of put in place to teach them that, work, uh, that this world is not just a cycle. It isn't just history repeats itself and we're stuck. That it's leading somewhere. The idea was your life matters and what it's leading to is rest. So you can work hard. It's the reason why uh, the Old Testament, when it pictures the new heavens and new earth, God completing his work of redemption, they'll often paint it as a, an eternal Sabbath is the picture that's often there. People feasting on a Sabbath. They've come to a place of rest. It became this big image. 
So the question is, why don't we as Christians worship on Saturday? Why didn't we gather here yesterday? Well, it's because from the earliest days of the Christian church, after the resurrection of Jesus, there was a recognition that something cataclysmic had happened. That in a sense, the first day, that day of Jesus rising from the dead, had become the first day of the new creation. That the rest that God had brought was more than just physical rest. It was a resting from our works as something to define us. That when Jesus rose from the dead, that promised rest that, that was held out for all the saints of the Old Testament, all the people that had placed their faith in, in, in God, apart from understanding how he was going to work, it was there. And so Christians began gathering on the first day. And in doing that, they were saying, we in our lives begin from a place of rest. It is not just an image that our work is leading to rest. It is an image that whatever we think we bring to the table is immaterial. We begin from a place of rest, and from that place of rest, that place of worthiness in Jesus, we go out into our world. We walk out to our world knowing that work may only have its value if it has its limits. We know that work can be good work only because we know that our work doesn't add or subtract from God's love for us. So we don't worship on Saturday. We worship on Sunday. Because of some of the stuff we read at the beginning, so some of the stuff we, we, we sang about and see what a morning. When Jesus rises from the dead, in a sense, he has completed whatever work we may need to think of that humanity has before God. And we stand in him justified by faith. That brings me to our second section here. How do we live as God's freed people? Because uh, the Sabbath isn't just about rest. That's what I've been emphasizing, rest. There's another side of the coin, and that's worship. Worship. The Sabbath is about rest and worship. Speaking of, have you ever thought about why we call this a worship service? It's a word we use, a worship service, and it kind of flows off. But have you ever stopped and thought, like, why don't we call this something different? Worship service. Service means work. If you go back and look at like a word liturgy, that's a, that's a fancy Christian term if you want to feel uh, real smart, um, that some churches use to talk about what this order of worship is. It's a liturgy. That's a word that means work. That what we're doing when we gather for worship is like a, a, a work. We are serving God. And that's why it was called a worship service. But here's the remarkable thing. It's almost counterintuitive, um, or it's almost undermining here. Because as I emphasize often, when we come into this place, we come to work without any tools in our hands. We come to work with empty hands. We come into this place with nothing in our hands to commend us. We don't walk in here bringing a bunch of sacrifices hoping they'll be good enough. We don't come in here bringing uh, you know, the fruit of our labor and saying, this is what I built in the last six days. Hope it's good. Here, take this, God. No, when we come in here, God provides all we need for worship. And our work is essentially to walk in this place and receive. It's a remarkable thing. For me, it means worship service isn't so much us serving God. It's God serving us. And it's something he's chosen to do. 
We come to serve Him, but we find ourselves being served by Him. In fact, think about even the structure of our service. We walk into this place, and we don't need to play the fastest, loudest, best song to get His attention. And then God's going to, his, his presence will usher in if we sing just good enough. We don't need to clamor to get His attention. How does our worship service start? With a call to worship to us from God's Word. He calls to us. He calls us to worship, and we bring our worst, and He assures of his, us of His grace. We sing, and we pray, and we're heard. And sometimes those prayers are not, you know, the most eloquent. They're not the best. Sometimes they're not even words. Sometimes prayers or groans were heard. Sometimes we sing, and it's pitchy. Sometimes a string breaks. Sometimes something goes wrong. It does not matter. We are heard. And then we hear from His Word, and we're invited to internalize this grace in the Lord's Supper. And we leave from this place with Him blessing us. We don't walk out from here and the benediction is saying, This week I'm going to try really hard, God. In fact, I do this. You know, you've noticed when I do the benediction. This is me turning the blessing of the Lord in a sense. I don't have like X-Men powers or anything. Out to you. And some of you do this, this posture. This is not a posture of you lifting something up. This is a posture of you receiving, right? That's what's going on here. Our work, we come in with no tools. In fact, we come in probably having made a mess of our work during the week. And what happens is God serves us when we're in here. The worship service is Him serving us. If this is our work, it's the best job in the world. It's the easiest job in the world. And we get the best pay and benefits. Every other religion treats this time like us trying to do something to please God. It does. Every other religion in this world, and sadly a lot of Christian churches, treat worship as a performance or as a work we do, hoping that God will find it acceptable. But the truth is that when we gather in the name of Jesus, we gather to have grace upon grace upon grace poured out on us. Friends, living out the freedom of the fourth commandment, this rest and worship, I think for what, what it means for us is we become people who prioritize rest and worship. We prioritize time of rest and worship together. We turn off the deadlines in the ticking clocks, we build our lives in the schedules around this time of worship and rest that God's given to us. Why? Because we desperately need it. The truth is, if we are not regularly getting together to one, with one another to hear the gospel, if we are not getting together to proclaim the gospel and embody the gospel to each other, it will not happen in any other place. And we walk out into jobs, into schools, we walk out into our communities and neighborhoods, and we are inundated with lesser messages. We are inundated with lists that we need to complete to earn love or earn acceptance. And that's not true in the church, and that's one of the reasons we have to prioritize our time together. If we aren't regularly getting together to hear the gospel, to experience the gospel, then we're going to find that the other stories, like the story, the lie that Pharaoh told the Israelites, 
will begin to dominate the way we see ourselves and other people. Now, don't hear this as a plea from me, you know, make sure you're at church on Sunday so all the seats can be filled. That's not what I'm saying. Not at all. And I don't have an attendance chart in my head. I don't have an attendance chart at home where I'm marking off when we're here and when we're not here and where we've been or anything like that. But this is a plea from me, from God to us, to not leave the gift of rest and worship on the table. We have to take seriously God's wisdom. We are his freed people, and as his freed people, we need rest. We need worship. We need each other. And the beginning of that is the Sabbath, is taking this seriously, taking rest and worship seriously. So what are some practical, simple ways we can see this in our lives? Well, as I've said, we prioritize worship and rest. Now, I know this might feel unrealistic and undoable, but... Maybe we try to not schedule anything else on Sundays except worship. This is hard, I know. <laughs> I'm bad at this, guys. But maybe we don't schedule anything else on Sundays except for worship. Maybe we try to get all of our work, all of our homework, and all the rest knocked out in six days. And I don't mean le be legalistic about this. I don't mean if something happens and you need to do something on a Sunday or if you're scheduled to work. I, I don't mean like uh, you feel shame about that. None of that. But if there's something on, the, on the, the horizon that needs to get done but it can wait, maybe we let it be. It'll be there Monday. Maybe this afternoon go home and rest and take a nap and don't feel guilty. Maybe don't go grocery shopping. I'm talking to myself here, guys. <laughs> Maybe don't go grocery shopping. Maybe uh, prioritize a time to read Scripture, even if it's just a little bit, to pray. Maybe read a book. Give, your space, give yourself space to breathe and not go, go, go. Not because you think God's going to be angry with you if you don't, but because rest matters, because you matter. You matter. And because you matter more than the things on your schedule. You matter more than your to-do list. And if all those other things are valuable enough for you to make time for, then you certainly are valuable enough for you to make time for. And that's what rest is. It may feel strange. It will feel strange. I'll just go ahead and say it. The only place... We all, we all laugh probably every week about Chick-fil-A being closed on Sundays, right? They're weird. And I'm not, it's not the Lord's chicken. It's good chicken. But, but I'll just say that out front. And this isn't me saying like, you know, you got to like Chick-fil-A the best to be a Christian. Bojangles has better chicken. Anyway, <laughs> this may feel strange. This may feel strange. But it was strange to the Israelites. This was not something that came natural to them. If you look at all the other religions of the ancient world, all the neighbors of the Israelites, You'll see a lot of similarities. Temples looked very similar. Um, social structures sometimes looked very sim similar to one another. They spoke similar languages. But there were a couple of things that made the Israelites incredibly weird and peculiar in their world. One of them was that they didn't make images to worship God by. It, it flabbergasted people that they didn't make images of God to worship. That in the middle of the temple, there was nothing. There wasn't a statue. The other thing was the Sabbath. 
It was totally weird. It was totally strange. It made them weird to everybody around them. There was nothing like it in the entire ancient world. It was wasteful, guys. It was foolish. You know how much you can get done in an extra day? And this may be unrealistic or it may feel that way. Sunday may be your one real day off, the day that you actually feel like you get the most stuff done. But let's give ourselves a chance to live out the truth that everything doesn't depend on us. That the world will keep rotating if we can take a nap. That it's not our hard work that keeps the world together. And friends, if you can't do it on Sunday, if it just cannot happen, find another day. You've got to rest. You've got to do it. Our hearts are being torn apart in our busyness. And if you need to start with 12 hours instead of 24, like just, but we got to try. We have to prioritize this because God prioritized it. He prioritizes us and invites us to do the same. So rest and worship and trust your time to Jesus. Again, not in a way where you are condemning or justifying yourself by how good you did at resting. Don't like get a rest trophy and give it to yourself at, you know. None of that. But as Jesus himself said, mankind was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for mankind. What he was saying is God put this in place for the good and the flourishing of people. And this leads me to my last section. How does this freedom lead us into mission? You may have noticed when I read it, and I've already mentioned this, that this commandment is not just you individual person need to honor the Sabbath. He says you should rest, and as far as you have a say in it, other people should rest too. Part of our honoring of the Sabbath is being about the good of other people. So he says you should rest, but your children should rest too. And your servants should rest, and your animals should rest. What he's saying is the Sabbath isn't just a protection for us, it's a protection for other people, in a sense, from us as well. The Sabbath wasn't just given to one set of society. It wasn't like the elites got to rest and everybody else still had to work. It was the same 24 hours given to everybody in Israelite society. It wasn't just the people who could afford it. And I think this gives us a powerful reminder that nobody, nobody ultimately belongs to us. Nobody. Nobody ultimately belongs to us. In Israel, no matter how powerful a person was, one day a week, they had no say over that person. You could be their employer, and you'd say, we've got to get, we got to, you know, the shipment's got to go out. I don't know what they did. We've got to get the wheat to market. And say, nope. God said, I rest. You deal with that. <laughs> I don't mean to be smart about it. But you, no person ultimately belongs to anybody else. You didn't have the right to tell anyone, family, servant, employee, a stranger, that they had to work for you on the Sabbath. Now, we may live in a massively different society, but the same is true of us. There is nobody in our life that ultimately answers to us. We may have relationships where we're over somebody. We may be an employer. We may be a parent. We may have people that rely on us for their, live, their livelihood, or whatever it may mean. But it doesn't mean that they ultimately belong to us. It ultimately means that they belong to God. 
And insofar as we have any position over anybody whatsoever, it is given to us to care for the people underneath us. And part of that is valuing not just our own rest, but theirs as well. There is nobody in our life that ultimately answers to us, and we all have a calling to consider how our actions impact other people. And the Sabbath teaches us, not just for one day in seven, but it teaches us to be people who are concerned about other people's well-beings. It teaches us to be people that see ourselves and define ourselves as connected to others and to ask those questions. How does my life impact this person? Because that's what the Sabbath was. How does my life impact my children? How does my life impact my servants? How does my life impact the stranger? And to change the way we live based on how we answer that question. Now that's not the only way the Sabbath leads us into mission. I could spend a whole other sermon on this, but the Sabbath is just actually the very beginning of something that spills out. It's an entire trajectory in the Old Testament. If you want to understand the Old Testament and a lot of what is said after Exodus 20, understanding this is huge. The Sabbath was more than just one day in seven. It started there, but it spilled out to the entire structure of society. Because the Sabbath was also like a painting of what the festivals would be in the Israelite year. So it wasn't just one day in seven you couldn't make people work. There were three pilgrimage feasts a year where people got one to two weeks just straight off. You don't work for one to two weeks for these three festivals a year. In fact, I counted it up. I wish I'd put the number down, but if you were an Israelite in the Old Testament and you were uh, obedient <laughs> to what God was saying regarding work, I think you worked like 150 days a year. Maybe 200, somewhere in there. That's crazy. In our world, right? But it wasn't just the festivals. Yes, festivals were times where everyone stopped working. Not just for a day, but for an entire week. But then it spilled out to a thing called the Sabbath year. This, is gonna, this blew my mind when I first was, was kind of digging into this. Every seven years, Israelites were told to not plant or harvest anything. Every seven years, debts were forgiven. So if somebody owed you money, they didn't owe you money anymore. Every seven years. If somebody had fallen into hard economic times and they had sold them or sold themselves to you, which in our world, in the way our economy works, is like if somebody worked for you, every seven years, you let them go. You said, you no longer have an obligation to me. And in fact, here's a bunch of money to go with you. I'm paying you as you leave. That was every seven years. You could not <laughs> plant and harvest. You had to live off what had been stored and live off the generosity of your neighbors and your community in that one year. You got a whole year off every seven years. And not just that. That was every seven years. Every 50 years was something called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was like that Sabbath year where debts are forgiven times 100. Any real estate transactions that had happened in the last 50 years were wiped from the books and land went back to the original family that it belonged to. 
Guys, we know too many stories of people falling into hard economic times and it sends families into generations and generations and generations of debilitating poverty. But what happened in the Jubilee is that God told them that, yeah, somebody can sell you land, but you're only renting it from them. You might rent it from this schedule of time, but economic hardships that befall a person, it is limited to them. It's going to be a hard reset. And this is to make sure that there are not generational cycles of poverty. Land goes back to the family it belongs to. And as more families and more people were added to Israel over years and generations and generations, they'd get their own allotment of land. And it belonged to them. On the year of Jubilee, not only were debts forgiven, not only were people set free, but land would be restored. It's a remarkable thing. All of this was built on this idea of the Sabbath. All of this was part of what the Sabbath meant. Not just one day in seven for you to rest, but the building blocks of an entire society that was designed to make sure that uh, unfortunate circumstances did not blast out like a Chernobyl radiation to destroy families. It's a remarkable thing. Now our calling this morning in the face of this is not to try to like get all of this instituted in the American government. Like, I'm not rallying behind a candidate this morning that's going to go on the Jubilee platform and they're going to try to... Frankly, wouldn't be a bad idea, but that's not our calling. But our calling this morning is not for nation building. That's not, we're not trying to grab power to do that. Our calling, though, is to create a community, to be a community in the church, to be individuals where these kinds of things are true where we don't treat poverty as a final judgment, where we don't treat poverty like something that just happens to people that don't work hard, where even if someone is in poverty that they brought on themselves, we don't get wrapped up in pointing fingers, that we value the person more than we value their net worth. Because I didn't even mention this about the year of Jubilee or those debts. It wasn't just some debts that would be forgiven. It wasn't just like these are worthy debts and, oh, this, these were unworthy debts. It wasn't just like, you shouldn't have sold your land. You really messed up, so the land's taken away from your family. No. It was across the board. Debt's forgiven. Land goes back. There was no pointing fingers. There was no calculations going on. A remarkable thing. Our calling is to be a place and to be a people where we ask with everything in our lives, our talents, our money, our time. How can I best use this, not just for my well-being, not just for my wealth building, but for the good of other people? Where we rid our hearts and minds at the thought that we are more valuable or more worthy of rest if we've worked ourselves to the bone, where we stop believing that about ourselves and we stop believing that about other people too. A place where we can rest and worship, where we make space for other people to rest and worship where we trade in the lies about who we are and who others are that the pharaohs of our culture and our own hearts will tell us and we go all in that the gospel is true. So in conclusion this morning, God is putting in front of us, I think, a vision for a different way of life. It will mean a shift. Taking rest and worship seriously does mean a shift, but this is a vision of a different way of life. It doesn't mean bills go away. It doesn't mean that demands on your time and a busy schedule goes away. 
But God this morning, I think, is opening a door for us that he means for us to walk through. To take him at his word that we can rest. To prioritize getting together for worship. To hear and experience together the gospel week after week. And to turn to our world that is running itself to death. And offer that same gospel and that same rest. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you call us, apart from anything we do, to enter into this rest. That that is what you offer to us, a resting from our works, as we read earlier from Romans. To stop measuring ourselves or anybody else by what we've done and what we've not done, but merely to receive what you have for us in Christ by faith. To receive that our sins are forgiven. To receive that we are justified in your sight. To receive that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just for him individually, but was the beginning of a new creation that belongs to us as well. And I, pl- I pray that as we look at our world through that lens, and we see ourselves as people who have been brought to rest, that you would make us people who take all of this seriously in everywhere of our lives. Turn us toward other people in their well-being. Turn us toward one another to value each other in our time together and help us, God. It will be hard for us, inundated in this world of busyness, to learn to rest. But teach us, God, in your gentleness. Restore us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.